not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. You hold the line faithful to duty, confronting our nation's foes with implacable will. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. You hold the line true to honor, living by a moral code regardless of who is watching. Our surrender will be voluntary because by that time we will have been weakened from within spiritually, morally, and economically. Welcome back, everybody, to the latest episode of Holding the Line, a podcast which takes a look at technology, innovation, policy, and its impacts on national security and foreign affairs. I'm your host, recently retired U.S. Navy Commander Guy Snodgrass. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, recently retired U.S. Army Captain Mark Solomons. Mark, how you doing? I'm doing great, Guy. How you doing? Uh, you know, hanging in there. It's been a fast and furious weekend. We've already kicked a couple episodes of the podcast out, had a lot of great feedback from friends and people who are approaching it from the very first time, especially because I think of the special episode we just had on Captain Brett Crozier. And so it's exciting to be back with you today for our part two discussion on coronavirus. And we're really enthusiastic to have joining us today a uh, special guest. We've got Dr. Tom Nichols, who's currently a professor up at the U.S. Naval War College. He's also a professor at the Harvard Extension School. And uh, first things first, I want to make sure that, you know, for everybody who is checking in with us and listening to today's conversation, although I and Mark are both recently retired from the U.S. Armed Forces, uh, Tom is still actively teaching up at the U.S. Naval War College. So his opinions and the opinions expressed in the podcast today are his personal ones and do not reflect either the official position of the Department of Defense or the U.S. Naval War College. So with that being said, you know, Mark, you actually served with Tom. You worked with Tom when you were an instructor yourself up at the Naval War College. Uh, what do you got on him? What's his background? Yeah, Tom and I go way back. He's a super person, all-around smart guy, five-time Jeopardy champion. I think he could have given Tom Jennings a run for his money. But all in all, Tom is one of the smartest folks we have working national security issues, and I'm proud to call him my friend as well. That's why today's episode is uh, super special for me as well. Yeah, he's he's a, interesting because he's a strategist. He's also a political scientist, right? So he studies how nations make decisions. He's put that into practice over decades of his own experience. Like you mentioned, he's actually had a tour where he served on a personal staff at U.S. Congress. So he's run everything from academia to actually being in practice in the field to in the halls of Congress. So I think we're going to have a great conversation with him today. But before we get to Dr. Nichols, I'm just curious, since we recorded the last podcast, we've had a lot of feedback regarding the way we covered and the ground we plowed on Captain Brett Crozier, who is, uh, just as a reminder, the recently fired captain of the USS Theodore Roosevelt. And I'm curious, you know, what kind of feedback have you heard? And then have any uh, follow-on questions come up from uh, from the listeners you've engaged with? Yeah, no, that was a great episode we did, Guy. And uh, there has been a number of questions coming in. Most of them center out why did the uh, service, the Navy in particular, take the actions it took. A uh, majority of the feedback I've received is Captain Brett Crozier was a a hero trying to do the right thing, taking care of his men like all good leaders do. So why in the world would the Navy secretary relieve him? And two questions that keep coming to mind in my uh, mind is, one, why did he write a four-page memo? And two, what did his immediate boss, Rear Admiral Baker, recommend uh, regarding his actions and whether he should be uh, relieved or not? Those two have not come out in the media. We hope to hear more as the investigation continues. But those are just two particular questions that I keep coming back to that I've not been able to get a clear answer to. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, you mentioned the strike group admiral, Rear Admiral Stu Baker, uh, his call sign Studa Baker. He's also a F-18 guy. In fact, a few years before I was a Top Gun instructor, he'd been a Top Gun instructor. So we've 
we've got plenty of uh, people in common. I've worked with them a few times, but you're right, eerily quiet. Uh, from people I've talked to who knows knew him much better than than I know him, would say that he's a very politically astute guy who's keeping his head down because right now he's seeing an exploding hand grenade going off in his vicinity, and the last place he wants to be is uh, with his head sticking up out of the foxhole. So perhaps we'll learn more about that. And that's likely where some of this communication breakdown occurred was between the captain of the ship and the admiral, Admiral Baker, who's actually uh, right across the hallway from where the captain works. Obviously, they they were in communication with each other as this was going up. You know, it's funny. One thing you mentioned, and we talked about this before we got on air, is just everyone seems to be confounded. Why did he go outside the lifelines of the chain of command? Why did he leak the letter? And so, one, the investigation's ongoing. We're only a few days into this. I would, I would tell you we need to see what the results are going to be. Two, I think it's the way that the press conference that the U.S. Navy and Navy leadership held that have kind of swayed this belief that he deliberately leaked his letter. And so real quick, this reminds me of a, of a similar, much smaller scale, but a similar experience I had in 2014. I had recently worked for the chief of naval operations, the senior uniformed leader. At the time, it was Admiral John Greener. And so I'm now in my training track, getting retrained in the F-18, and we had a, a the head of human resources who had come down, Admiral Bill Moran, and he was what's called the chief of naval personnel and had shared with us some of the hardships that we saw for retention, problems that we're facing the Navy. And, and he kind of threw out a blanket request and said, if you guys have anything you want to offer, send it my way, send it straight to me. So took up that challenge. And over the course of the next month, month and a half, did a lot of research. I thought about it for a few years. I had the benefit of being a graduate from the Naval War College, uh, Mark, where you were teaching there. So you know, I thought about these things deeply, put it all together in about a 24-page white paper and floated it up to that admiral, and I sent it to one person who I knew personally at the uh, Navy Personnel Command who was the uh, one of the guys responsible for running naval aviation. So my white paper went through the lifelines, through the chain of command, if you will, to the chief of, uh, or to the chief of naval personnel and then to the, uh, one of the directorates he leads. So to the right people. The... Uh, my fellow lieutenant commander sends it up to his captain because they like the language and they want to use it to justify why it was important to bring back a retention bonus for commanding officers because naval aviation was having trouble keeping everyone in. So that captain got it. He read it, said, this is great. It says what we need. I need to share this with what we call the air boss, a three-star admiral, and his two-star component out at U.S. Naval Air Force is what we call Airland. So now that captain sends it to two admirals. Those staff members see it in a Navy commander, who was the executive assistant to Airlant at the time, uh, said, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this guy wrote this. And he forged it out to about 10, 15 of his friends out in the fleet. And next thing you know, three days, four days later, I'm getting stopped in the parking lot outside of the base exchange with someone asking, rolling down their truck window saying, man, I read your white paper. It was amazing. Thanks. And I'm wondering, how in the heck did you get it? And so we do the forensics and found out that's how something that is deliberately sent up the chain of command in the right way can leak outside the lifelines because someone who's overzealous on those email chains can start spreading it around. Yep, everybody trying to do the right thing, and you know, hopefully it ends up with a positive outcome, but in the case of uh, Captain Crozier, not necessarily so. And uh, we still want to peel that back some more and watch this as, as it moves forward here. Very interesting. Yeah, and I think the one the one thing that will be interesting, too, is uh, the New York Times had just reported that Captain Crozier allegedly has now tested positive himself for COVID-19. So I think that'll be interesting to see how that one plays out and how just widespread it actually became amongst the crewmates on board that ship. Which touches on one other good point, Guy. I mean, how many other ships are floating out there with people with 
possible corona on board. I mean, the Fitzgerald was just one of many. I'm sure there has to be more out there. So what's going to happen is more ships come up with a positive coronavirus uh, sailors on board. Yeah. And, you know, in fact, I was interviewed on this last week and my answer is much like it would be as a Top Gun instructor. It depends. So the Theodore Roosevelt was a was a pretty significant outlier uh, for an example for a ship that had a number of cases that were rapidly increasing. There are some ships that no doubt have been at sea for some period of time. In fact, may have been at sea without a port call since coronavirus became a significant issue. And so if that's the case, you could foresee that those types of ships certainly could just remain at sea, get resupplied, and you could keep them in, you know, basically from being put into any kind of harm's way or keep their operational readiness, if nothing else, as elevated as possible. So there are some ships that may need to be addressed. Others, I think, probably the, the vast majority will be just fine. But to your point, it, it's a, you know, that's the kind of stuff that, that not only Navy, but military leadership are juggling right now as they look at the operational readiness for all units just to make sure that they are juggling and balancing that as we discussed in the special podcast, they, they're balancing that line between uh, making sure that they take care of the health and welfare of the men and women who serve, while also making sure that the operational readiness is where it needs to be in case they're called upon somewhere around the world to act. That's exciting, and that's what I think we're going to get to today with our, our guest, uh, Professor Tom Nichols. Absolutely. So here we go with Professor Tom Nichols. All right, so uh, Tom, thanks again for uh, making time to join Mark and I today. My pleasure. Good to be with you guys. So we covered in part one of our look at coronavirus, basically just the epidemiology of the virus, the concerns about how it's spreading throughout the United States. As we talked with Dr. Sam Ward from UCSD, we appreciate your time because, of course, as someone who has studied national security for decades, you have books out, you are teaching up at the Naval War College. So you've given a lot of thought to the intersection of how external events can impact the United States national security. So certainly, Mark and I are very uh, just curious, how do you see coronavirus playing out right now? And then let's draw that thread towards national security and, and what that means for us internally, but also as we relate to allies, partners, and adversaries around the world. Well, there's a couple of levels to think about COVID plays out on an international scale. One, one kind of macro argument that everybody's happening is the degree to which this is going to unwind globalization or halt globalization. I think that's uh, overblown. I think the there's a lot of the um, reaction right now centers around the feeling of crisis that we have at the moment. And one thing we've learned from crises is that people tend to forget them uh, over time. This is going to have a lasting impact, and I think it's definitely going to change our relationship with China, as it should. Um, you know, whether it's uh, China's lack of transparency uh, about what initially happened um, and how many people were actually sick, whether it's how much of our supply chains rely on China, I think some of that will change at the level of government policy down the line. Whether this you know, really unwinds the, the whole notion of open uh, tr you know, travel and global dependency between nations, I'm really skeptical about that because one of the interesting things about the COVID crisis from a global perspective, is that it's made us all rely on the instruments of international cooperation and international institutions. Um, had this just happened in one country, if this had been like a, I don't know, think of, you know, um, 28 Days Later, right, in Great Britain, or, you know, the movie 28 Days Later, where they just try and quarantine the British Isles, uh, you know, then you would have had a different outcome. I, I think uh, the fact that this is that this went global so fast and that people are scrambling uh, 
to to react to it. Use and to and basically that citizens are doing things like just like we're doing right now, using the internet, using Skype, um, talking to each other over great distances. I actually think is going to strengthen some of those habits of virtualization and integration across countries. Okay, that's the that's the top level argument. Um, I think, however, from the point of view of American national security, uh, you know, we tanked our response. I mean, I think this is going to suggest that, first of all, leadership matters, as I'm sure is something we'll talk about in a moment, but also that some of our bureaucracy and uh, our institutions, you know, they're just large and clunky and unwieldy. And um, they don't communicate with each other, including across time. One of the things that, <clears throat> as we're talking about this now, uh, one of the things that just came out was apparently George W. Bush was on his, um, uh, you know, on a tear about a possible pan pandemic 15 years ago. And then the Obama administration wrote a playbook for a pandemic. Um, we, it's almost like we have no long-term memory, and that's bad, whether it's national security, whether it's health policy, or anything else. And I, I don't know if it's going to change anything, but I hope it kind of streamlines the amount of bureaucracy um, and uh, you know reminds us that we have things like a National Security Council for a reason. Well, it's one thing you mentioned about the, for example, short-term memory is something that Mark and I can relate to with our background as uh, recently retired Naval and Army officers, right? So uh, we always joked about, hey, we've got lessons written down, but they're not necessarily lessons learned. And right. we've all read in recent days about how the Obama team, for example, had a 2016 playbook for Ebola, how that got handed off to the Trump administration. And in the beginning of 2017, the administration, meaning the Trump administration, was given the opportunity to... Uh, do a warm handover and say, here are the things we learned about how you'd fight a pandemic. And, and they kind of got waved away and said, nope, we got this, get out of here. Right. And I can certainly tell you, I mean, even from my vantage point, having worked with Secretary Mattis, and I, and I cover this a lot in the book that I put out, where that has been a noted, just a, I don't want to call it a deficiency necessarily. It's just a noted aspect of this administration that there's a lack of coordination across agencies. And typically what you find is a little bit of the uh, shooting from the hip and then everyone else has to catch up with it. And I, examples that came to mind for my tenure were when President Trump met with Kim Jong-un and unbeknownst to anybody in the Pentagon or in the White House takes to the podium and says that we're stopping major military exercises with the South Koreans as a trade to the North Koreans for that uh, opportunity for the photo op. And everyone now scrambles to figure out how do we make that happen? And also how do we reassure our allies and partners that, uh, you know, once again, we're not stepping away from the national stage. So I think you're right. There's this, there's this interplay of leadership during a crisis matters. And so you just recently, as we noted, published an op-ed in the USA Today. Do you want to spend maybe just a couple of minutes walking us through your thoughts on leadership during a time of crisis? Sure. Um, you know, there's it, nobody will be left, you know, wondering how I feel about the Trump administration. Um, you know, I've made my feelings on that clear for years, but I'm actually going to cut a tiny bit of space for the Trump administration and say that um, Trump and the way he's um, handling this, or I should say mishandling it, is the natural evolution of two two trends, I think. One is the hyper-partisanizing of everything. Um you know, you you saw that in the um, in fact, it bothered um, Bush 43 enough that he actually instituted and pushed for a law to have a better transition between administrations. 
Um, you know, we used to be better about that. It used to be that, you know, the, the guys going out and the guys coming in <clears throat> spoke to each other, worked with each other, made sure that the country wasn't going through a blind spot and handing them over. But but I think by, you know, the 90s, um, with the end of the Cold War and this sense that we're really not in that much danger in the world, um, we could indulge our hyper-partisan instincts. And the Trump administration has walked that right off the cliff. I mean, they literally are like, if Obama said it, it's wrong and we don't want to hear it. Um, the other is the incredible focus that has been taking place now for a good 40 or 50 years on the president as the as the boss of everything. Another tendency that the Trump administration has just driven right off the cliff with. Um, the too many, There's too many plugs uh, on the Christmas tree all going into the same outlet in the Oval Office. And some presidents are better at that than others. I mean, Jimmy Carter was a hypermanager. Reagan was too delegative, as we found out with Iran-Contra. Um, you know, Bush 43 took the business school approach. The chief of staff ran things. Uh, but you're seeing what happens when a guy who has no experience running anything. I mean, even his own businesses were basically him slapping his name on things while other people ran them, now being asked to somehow coordinate a gigantic response. And there are other people, again, brought in with this, if I can, I'll, I'll just plump my own book and my own writing on this, on expertise. A Please. guy brought in saying, you know, experts are stupid. We don't need them. So what do you get? You get a guy at CDC who's never run a major organization. Whether he's a good doctor or a bad doctor is really secondary to the bigger problem that he's just never run anything. Um, presidents never really run anything. Um, you have all of these people, that, you know, the, the Surgeon General kind of, you know, plucked out of nowhere. National Security Advisors chosen because they were on TV. Um, this is just crazy time. And I think you're seeing the outcome of that. And the thing I wrote last week in USA Today is that I watch the president's, other people can't stand to do it. I watch the president's press conferences because I'm a political scientist and an American. And when the president talks, I watch. Um, I watch all, watched all of Obama's, you know, I didn't vote for Barack Obama either, but I watched all of his press conferences. And I watched all of W's conferences. Every time after 9-11, there was something going on. I turned on the television, I paid attention. But also because I think we need a record of the incompetence and the mismanagement that we're facing now, not just for partisan reasons, but for lesson, as you point out, less, learning lessons instead of just writing them down and putting them in a desk. Um, I think when this is over, we need to have a 9-11 kind of commission to say, how, how, did, how did we screw this up? Um, because it's not going to all be Trump's fault. Um, as, as much of the reaction that we're going through now is Trump's complete, you know, I, <clears throat> personally, <clears throat> excuse me, it seems to me like the president's just having a meltdown um, trying to deal with this. Uh, but there were other places that, that dropped the ball. I mean, HHS, CDC, um, you know, people that were all trying to communicate with each other. Apparently the intelligence community tried to brief the president and he didn't want to hear that. Um, you know, there's a reason that we write a PDB. The president should read it. So I think all of those things need to be looked at closely. But uh, I, I think a lot of the um, the flat-footedness of this reaction is directly tied to the fact that the that this kind of leader-centric principle has now met its match in Donald Trump. That we were getting away with that 
for years because we had guys that, whatever their other flaws, were reasonably decent leaders and could get through these things. Um, but this, this shows you what happens when you pile all of this power and responsibility into the office of the president, and then you've got somebody in there who just isn't up to the job. Yeah, you said one thing that I think uh, certainly hits home for both Mark and I, right? It's uh, just the importance of lessons learned and and taking the time to actually think about those things. You know, earlier in my career when I'd been a Top Gun instructor, we talked about there's the fact that there's always four phases of flight. You've got your preparation for the mission. You've got the brief where everyone needs to be brought up to speed with what we're actually going to accomplish. You have the mission itself, and then you have the debrief. And while you have to perform on mission, the most important part of that whole cycle is the debrief because it's where you learn, you know, here's what we planned. This is our desired outcome, but we found a gap. What caused that gap? How do we close it for the next mission, let alone the mission we do a month from now? And also for other units that are being coordinated with us so that everyone can improve and work better into the future. So I think that that's uh, an important aspect. I know it's uh, a hyper-partisan period of time, but I, I certainly appreciate Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi calling for a bipartisan commission to look at our response, because as we've heard Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks talk about from the White House podium, uh, they expect to see potentially a wave two as we get into the fall. And the conditions are now more advantageous for uh, increased spread once again of coronavirus. And so the lessons we learned from right now, our response could pay dividends, not years for another, another pandemic, but months down the road here domestically. Well, two things. First, uh, first, you're a Top Gun guy. I was. How can Tom Cruise still be flying and you're not? I, ha- I mean, <laughs> there's just something wrong here. Um, but the, um, you know, the second thing is that this, I think this is one place, uh, I am not a huge fan of trying to import military methods into civilian government, but this is one place I think that um, the military does does things right. And I say this, you know, Mark and I were at the War College together. Um, and Mark knows, you know, I was one of those soft-bellied civilians that was always whining about, you know, government rules and, you know, having a, a muster and do all that stuff that uh, we do at military organizations. But one of the things I think we do right, and and that is, even in the educational realm, is we're always looking at ourselves and we're always doing kind of, as you say, those after action. You know, how did th- how did this go? Did I did I get this right? Um, in a way that I think. You know, I've worked in a lot of civilian universities and think tanks over the years. You know, we rarely do that uh, elsewhere. We get teaching evaluations and we, um, you know, sort of think about the term we had. But I think, you know, this is one place where I've learned a lot from the military. uh, And I think it made me a better teacher and it made me a better researcher um, to do this constant sort of self-check to to see if we were actually, you know, fulfilling the mission and doing things the right way. And And I think... Somewhere that got lost in the, um, again, to go back to the hyperpartisanship point, somewhere that whole notion has gotten lost in, am I just making my audience happy? You know, are we making our faithful happy? Are, am, you know, are, are my approval ratings going up or down? And I don't think anybody's really thinking about, are we, I shouldn't say anybody. I think that a lot of the people in the political realm aren't thinking about, are we getting this right? And I think, you know, again, where we are right now is the natural outcome of that kind of thinking. Yeah. Hey, Tom, let's uh, take that a little further there. And by the way, I did appreciate all the discussions we had up there. Uh, I, mean, I was one of those knuckle-dragging Army guys, and I, you know, nobody was going to tell me anything at the war. <laughs> I already knew everything coming in. So little did I know once I got out how much I had to learn. So let's put a different hats on it, you know, put our policymaker hat on or, you know, where you stand depends on where you sit. So I'm thinking 
three big camps. So you got your medical experts, you got your policy advisors, throw in your economists. Who should be you know, leading this coronavirus fight there? Are we just going to default to the medical folks and then everybody follows what they say? Or should you know, the policymakers be taking a lead and uh, coming out with a game plan? What What is the direction we should be heading here? See, that's a great question because it's not I think one of the things that's really important for people to understand about the issue of expertise is that um, one area of expertise doesn't trump another uh, in terms of a, a kind of whole of government approach. Of course, you're going to listen to the doctors and the scientists. Medical science is a is a field of expertise, but so is the execution of policy. Um, you know, I used to have this argument with friends that worked on nuclear weapons stuff. Mark knows I, I did a lot on nukes. And, you know, to say, well, I'm a scientist and here's why nuclear weapons are bad, because when they blow up, they do X, Y and Z. Great. That's a whole form of expertise. That's a different kind of expertise than how do I write a treaty to, to prohibit more of these things? And it's the same problem here. Here's what the virus does. Here's the epidemiology. Here's what we think is going to happen. Great. Now you need people who understand federalism, bureaucracy, um, how large organizations work, public-private partnerships. You have to work together with those. I would never advocate simply turning to anyone, you know, to to say Tony Fauci and saying run the government. Because right. That's a great point. That's guy and I wrestle with that as well as we watch uh, the administration, you know, figure out how best to get a handle on this in a. You know, at the end of the day, who should be in, in charge there and what should be the fallout of, you know, President Trump likes to tout himself as a wartime president. But, you know, here he is wanting to push all the responsibility down to the states. Well, you know, as we all know, you don't go to war one state at a time. It's a you know, right. national consolidated effort. So I'm just wondering yeah. how the state governor is supposed to react to that kind of guidance. Trump loves that metaphor about a wartime president, but he refuses to act like one. Um, if you think about you know, even the wars that we've seen, the, the you know, the three of us in our experience, and I, I worked on the Hill during the first Gulf War, um, there is military expertise. This is how you execute an, an operational plan. This is how you fly an airplane. This is how you execute, you know, the left hook uh, around Kuwait. Um, that's a different matter than tell me what it is you're trying to achieve in a war. I mean, you know, Mark and I, this is one of the things we taught for years at the War College, still teach, uh, the difference between operational excellence and strategic coherence. Um, and I think that's, again, that's one of the things that's being lost here. Uh, you know, Dr. Fauci can tell you, here's, here's what this bug does, and here are the things that will stop it. That... I, I, the idea that anybody would even argue with Fauci or Burks about this, it just enrages me. Mm -hmm. uh, and the right answer from there should be, okay, now what I'm good at is organizing, you know, supply and logistics and moving things from one place to another and talking to governors and working with hospitals. And um, the problem is the, the president, I think, is at the top of this saying, I just want to know what's good for me in all this. And that will depend on who I'm listening to at any given moment. Anybody who's ever seen leadership operating during a war knows that's not how they do it. You get your military brief, you talk with your advisors, you work with the people, you know, across agencies from state to commerce, to treasury, to justice, wherever it is. Um, 
you don't try to just kind of wing it every day. And I think that's one of the things that really offends me about the president's briefs every day. He's winging it. I mean, it bothers me when he's reading stuff that has important information. And it's very clear to me, I said this, I've said this many times, he's, it's, he's always reading it for the first time. He does no preparation. He's going out and talking to millions of people who are scared out of their minds. And it's very clear that he's looking at a piece of paper and pretty much it's the first time he's seen it. Yeah, it is uh, scary hearing it on the news there. Hey, let's uh, move around the world a little bit. Uh, yeah. Another area of uh, expertise for you is with Russia and Putin there. Obviously, you know, CV-19 has impacted many countries. What do you think of uh, Putin's reaction to, to how they're handling this? It's obviously not as bad. Do they, are they doing something smarter than we are on it? No, no. And talk, you know, t- take all of the flaws that have bedeviled our government and put them on steroids with everything, you know, plugged into one office in Moscow and you've you've got Russia and you know the Russians the only difference is the Russians can just um, much more easily than any American government ever could the Russians can just make stuff up um, you know how many how many covid deaths have you had um, none oh okay well what did all these people die of pneumonia uh, and That's so, <laughs> you know, and yet, how, how do you question that? Or just a you know, May slash uh, Putin just locked down Moscow last week. So, you know, yeah, so, so, went in the, the narrative on the, you know, the Russian airlift of supplies there, you know, here he is coming out again, like the, the good guy and a coming to the rescue. I think back to, you know, his involvement with, a uh, you know, Syria, you know, the, at the end of the Obama administration, him coming in and save the day on that. Yeah. So let's, let's, I think that's a great point that Mark just brought up, right? So we're talking about some of these other nations, we're folding them into the conversation now. So we've covered a little bit of the spectrum. The initial notification coronavirus is going to be a concern, not just in Wuhan, but also as we see it beginning to spread. I think that any after action report, however, whatever you want to call it, is going to demonstrate that there was every, anywhere from a month to a month and a half to two months of time lost, opportunity lost, because there was not only a lack of response, but there was actually deliberate misinformation being put out from all quarters because of our hyper-politicized environment. Um, and that slowed our response nationally. Now, like Mark mentioned, you've got both China and Russia looking for a little bit of a narrative coup because they're helping the United States out. They're sending supplies. They're doing things to help the uh, other nations around the world. So, Tom, I guess the question back to you is, uh, what does this mean for us? Because, you know, it's not lost on me. I mean, sometimes life imitates art. And you've got I'm reading Tom Clancy right now. I've, I've read his series of books. I'm going back through uh, Dead of Honor and Executive Orders, which is a moment of time kind of like this. You've got uh, an economic collapse. You've got a manufactured pandemic. I mean, how if you are Russia, if you are China, other than just the narrative that they can exploit, how would you look to take advantage of the United States during our compromised position? Well, this is going to be a strange thing to say, but um, I I don't think they really are getting the bump out of this that maybe you guys think they are. Um, you know, the Chinese, if the Chinese try to get some kind of, you know, um, attaboy out of this, they need to sit right down because, of course, they're the ones who screwed up the initial response worse than anyone. Um, I mean, I have really been blistering about people like Tom Cotton, who I think have been putting out all kinds of paranoid theories. Um, and I th- And part of the reason I'm mad at people like Cotton is that it gets in the way of criticizing the Chinese for what you ought to criticize them for which was you know, their own club-footed or flat-footed uh, reaction to this whole thing that, that let it get out of, the, um, get out of the, the gate in the first place. Um, and uh, the Russians, you know, I was, I was 
really pissed off about that Russian, you know, flight. This is where, you know, any sensible American president would have said, no, thank you. We appreciate the gesture, you know, help out our friends in Europe. They're a lot closer. They could use your help. You know, we'll, we'll work on this. But I think, again, that that was something that looked better for Putin uh, a week before he had to lock down Moscow than it does today. I'm sure there are Russians saying, why did we why did we do this publicity stunt of sending stuff to the United States when people here in, you know, Irkutsk are keeling over uh, from this thing? So the fact that it's a global pandemic in a way puts all of the countries of the world on the same um, footing. You know, nobody I don't think it really gives anybody an advantage over us. Um, You know, I don't think there's a lot of countries in the world who are saying, let's try something cute against the United States while they're trying to juggle a pandemic. Okay, good. Uh, so, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't want to say, well, great, it's a good thing it was a global pandemic because, you know, it's, it's a terrible tragedy. On the other hand, it's put all of the countries in the world in the same box. Um, and and to, to have them say, you know, there's no country in the world that says, well, we don't have that problem, so now we can take advantage of the United States. So switching back a little bit, maybe from the strategic back to the tactical, something that uh, you and I and others have been beaten up all over social media is the firing of Captain Brett Crozier, the captain of the USS Theodore Roosevelt that had been sidelined in Guam. Uh, you know, and I think the reason why this really certainly caught my attention, and it's something once again that had concerned me, and I wrote about it, was just the increasing politicization of the military. Mm. Uh, military for decades, especially since the Vietnam War, had, had enjoyed the highest level of support from the American public. And by, by support, I mean constantly by Pew Research Center, it's shown as the most trusted institution in America. And so I guess I'm curious, do you see, based on what you've observed over the past few years, uh, do, you, are, do you share that concern or do you? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I wrote a piece for The Atlantic um, a few years back when even before it had come out about Trump calling generals dopes and babies and all that stuff. Um, I had written a piece for The Atlantic about Trump really accelerating the corrosion of civil military relations because, um, you know, it is the president's instinct to politicize everything because he is at the center of all of his own policies. And. You know that I mean, look, presidents do that. I mean, pre- I I actually jumped all over Mitt Romney for having a uh, a campaign event at one of the academies, and of course he had all the cadets and all the flags behind him. And I said, you know, you don't if if the point is to create an apolitical officer corps, you don't have political rallies at military academies. You just don't. And you know, everyone who does it, in my opinion, is is wrong to do it. It's different when the commander in chief goes and gives a major policy speech at you know West Point or Annapolis. But if you're campaigning or if you're trying to score political points, you stay away from that. And I think that hasn't happened. I I've taken a lot of hits over Crozier, even though I haven't really expressed a view on this. I I said on Twitter the other day, you know, again, as Mark can tell you, I've never commanded anything bigger than a desk. Uh, I was I was a department chair, but, you know, department chairs don't command their departments so much as they preside over cat herding. And, um, you know, so I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I've never been in the military, so it's wrong. I, I think it would be um, worrisome for me to express too strong an opinion about this. I have two concerns about what happened with Crozier. One is, how did we get to a situation where the commander of the Roosevelt felt he had to go outside the chain to save his men and women. That worries me. Uh, someone said to me, would you have supported this 
you know, if Bush or Obama had done it. And I thought my first thought was uh, Bush, somebody work, you know, somebody in the military then wouldn't have been in the situation Crozier was in right now. Uh, and that worries me because the second thing that I think is the most important is the ability for any subordinate and certainly any expert, but but you know anyone who's been a subordinate. I've worked as a again as a department chair at the Warcog. I've worked for multiple flag officers who didn't always like what I told them. I worked for a senator who you know once threw me out of his office for saying something he didn't like. Um, you the most important job of an expert and a subordinate is to speak truth to power. Tell your boss the truth. You must always feel comfortable being able to say what is true. And it bothers me that this is a moment where, you know, speaking truth to power is getting this, you know, avalanche uh, uh, of criticism on him. Whether it was the right thing to go outside the chain, leak the letter, hey, that is a within the military an issue for them to resolve with one of their own uh, 06s. For okay. me, as a civilian guy, it bothers me that the the chain seems to have been circumvented for political reasons. In, there was a report in the Washington Post that Seknav basically said Trump wants him fired. That bothers me. Yeah, there's also that, I believe, same article or one that accompanied it that said uh, Secretary, Acting Secretary of the Navy Modley had given Captain Crozier his direct line and said, call me anytime. And it's like, well, once again, if you're if you're trying to stay within the chain of command, the secretary of the Navy doesn't tell a carrier CEO circumvent yeah. your chain of command and, and talk to me directly. So a lot of things that once again, and, will and come that, out of this after action report, just to go to the same report, that same report said that when this was discussed, apparently chief naval operations said bad idea. Yeah. Well, I, then, then now we have a different chain of command problem, which is, yeah, whatever Crozier did, you know, going leaking a letter or letting it be leaked. On the other hand, if you've got senior uniform Navy leadership saying, look, we have procedures to handle this, and there's a political intervention that says, no, I want the guy made an example of, that's a problem too. I, I know Mark's got a, a comment or a question for you here in a second, but I did want to follow up on one thing you said, and maybe you you might have a strong opinion about this uh, that I'd love to hear. And that is, you said, you know, when Trump said dopes and babies. Okay. Um, so that came out of a book that was published by two uh, Pulitzer Prize winning reporters from Washington Post uh, in a book called A Very Sable Genius. They are highlighting a meeting that I was at, one of about 15 people, 20 people in the entire United States in this meeting. Trump never said that, right? So that was never a part of that meeting. Uh, there's been a noted instance where a guy like Steve Bannon, for example, has been incredibly loquacious. He's been going to anybody who'll listen and he's trying to share his story of events, uh, typically which make him look pretty good. But that was something that offended me as a guy who was actually in a room. I covered that meeting in my book because I wanted to be factual, be apolitical, get that out there. And now, so I'm curious, like you not only have a very interesting period of time because there's so much, like everything is politicized. Everything is bipolar inside the United States. And there's an important role for, you know, quote unquote, mainstream media to play uh, journal of record, like the New York times and others. It worries me when you have two Pulitzer Prize winning reporters who I would naturally, if I'm an average American, look to as you've been recognized for your skilled at your craft. And that means you're likely trustworthy and you're putting something out there that I can believe in as honest and to put falsehoods out there, uh, because that plays right into, in my mind to Trump's uh, rhetoric about uh, fake news, fake news. Well, two things. One is, uh, you know, you're well within your rights to demand that they show their receipts. 
Um, you know, that's what reporters do. They take notes. And if they say they have it on record from two sources, um, then, you know, they then you should challenge them. But I will say, uh, unfortunately, the only person who could really resolve all this stuff is your former boss. And he's decided to be quiet, uh, which I think is unfortunate um, because I don't know who to believe on this um, when it comes to, uh, you know, the differing accounts that sometimes come out of the White House that I think, you know, I mean, look, we, we're all big kids. We've all worked in Washington. We know people leak strategically. They have memories of things that uh, they will shape in a way that is advantageous to them. Um, I don't know whether these two reporters would tell you that it was the exact same meeting or where they got it. Um, but, you know, until, until the former secretary wants to speak up, uh, it's kind of a jump ball on this. You claim you were there, I believe you. They're going to claim that they were. They heard it from attendees. At the was it exactly the same meeting or other meetings? Were they conflating them? Uh, I don't know. Um, yeah. I think. I think it's. I think this is a problem because uh, the per, the the. Um, and I think this is a bad. This is where I'm actually going to come a little more on your side about the media. I think ever since Watergate, the media has decided that its job is to always out the government, which is always lying, especially if they're conservatives. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, it's not, you know, I suspect you haven't read the book and I haven't read it myself. I just uh, had someone from the media of all things uh, had reached out to me for comment uh, mm -hmm. because and then they are they are highlighting the same meetings. I mean, President Trump only came to the Pentagon for a small number of briefs during his tenure. So uh, it's not let's hard. Put, let's put this in historical context, because yeah. there's a similar meeting that somebody claimed once happened with Lyndon Johnson. And um, General Cooper claimed to have been at that meeting where uh, Johnson asked about escalating in Vietnam. And when the chiefs told him he should, he lost his mind and started calling them uh, assholes and dumb shits. And, you know, all that he said, Cooper literally said, you know, language a Marine rarely hears. Um, other people swear the meeting didn't happen. Um, others claim that it happened and it didn't happen that way. And to this day, you know, I, I mean, principles yeah. dead. No, nobody knows. The other thing I was going to say, though, whatever, wh however much the presumption of the media may be that the government's always lying, this administration in particular gets no benefit of the doubt, none, because this has been the least honest administration. I, I would have to say, I mean, this this makes the Nixon White House look like a model of transparency. I mean, this this administration lies. Um, you know, like other people breathe. And so part of the reason you're even seeing me, you know, kind of hemming and hawing here is, you know, guy, I want to believe you that the meetings you were at that never happened. But do I, you know, I, sure. I didn't, I finished the book by um, uh, Lennigan um, uh, Rucker. I read that Dopes and Babies thing as an account in the Washington Post as the excerpt. So, uh, you know, I think it's a great, that'd be a great article to write. I mean, say I was at the meeting. Here's, you know, what yeah. I think happened. Here's well, not only that, but the funny thing is, is that there was only one person at that meeting charged with uh, actually taking contemporaneous notes to capture all parts of that meeting. And, and I'm that person. So that's what's that's what's interesting about it, because to your point about the death of expertise, you've got this also what I fear is the death of honesty, because there's something in my mind of, well, hey, something, where do you think they got it? What? Where do you think they got it? <laughs> That's the question uh, I would ask then. If they no, no, no. Uh, you know, it's funny because it's the same thing when I read, uh, and I did read the entire book uh, by Bob Woodward. I think it was uh, Fury. Yeah. Uh, or I'm sorry, Fear. Yeah. 
And uh, he covers that same meeting in his book. And it's a little bit closer to reality, but you could tell by the way that the narrative was spun that the two sources, one definite source was Steve Bannon, the other source is possibly Steve Mnuchin. Because when you read Bob Woodward's take, it's like Bannon and Mnuchin were running that meeting and were like the lions of, you you know, explaining everything to the president. Well, guess what? Mnuchin spoke maybe once the entire meeting and Bannon also only spoke once. Vice President didn't say I admit I had a problem with the with the um, Woodward book, which I did read uh, yeah. because I started to realize how heavily it relied on Bannon. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, most the things. Last do, person in the world I'm going to trust on anything is Steve Bannon. So. <laughs> so anyway, to your point, yeah, there might be something to uh, to look at down the road, but it does bother me when, I, you know, it, it is a nature of DC as I learned from my two tours at the Pentagon that that things can get leaked out, but but traditionally I've seen to your point about a dishonest period of time. I've seen things make their way into the public domain that probably shouldn't or arguably shouldn't, but at least they were accurate. And then yeah. this is the first time where I'm seeing so much ink being spilled and so much of it is, it seems to be conjured out of thin air. And it, you know, again, if you historically look back in time, it's like if I'm in Russia, for example, I love it because no one can trust anything from anybody. It is yeah. just information flowing everywhere. And now everyone, instead of going to People who are going to tell you facts, they're simply just talking about, here's what my gut tells me. Here's what I think. Here's, here's, here's I one feel. thing that I think is a distinct problem with this administration as opposed to others, which is this administration more than any other is Game of Thrones. Um, they are not all on the same team. They are all in fear of the same guy and afraid of getting, you know, mean tweeted or fired by the same guy. But behind the scenes, um, you know, people are le- and I, some of the folks I've spoken with who have talked to leakers, you know, when they will, you know, kind of off the record tell you who they think is leaking. I mean, it's really shocking. Um, And it says that, you know, this is just a, you know, a a giant um, thunderdome where nobody trusts anybody. Nobody. I mean, compare it to something like the message discipline that was coming out of the Bush 43 White House or even the Obama White House um, before that. Um, less so in the Clinton White House, because there were people that were really pissed at Bill Clinton for his personal uh, behavior. But um, I've just never seen a, an administration where nobody is on the same page about anything. I mean, they are countermanded. They, um, you know, they, they put stuff out and then they contradict each other. Um, and I think, again, it's that, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like Survivor or The Apprentice. They're all on the verge of getting fired in a in a heartbeat. And so they're all trying to get their story out. And of course, as you know, all of us know here, the first person to call Bob Woodward wins, yeah. uh, which I, you know, I don't think is a healthy thing. Yeah. And it's interesting because uh, maybe maybe the problem is obviously this administration has drained the swamp, Tom, as I'm sure you would agree. So uh, maybe the problem is, is what's left became so, uh, you know, concentrated. Well, or, <laughs> All or the they, excess water was taken away. You know, I, they drain they drain the swamp and just replace they replace Potomac water with Hudson water. <laughs> it's the same it's the same swamp. It's just a different flavor of swamp. Yeah, I'm just having fun uh, with you. So uh, moving on to lessons learned from all this, let's uh, take it back to CV19. And uh, I've been getting asked a number of questions out in the field there. You know, what are we going to learn from this whole experience moving forward? Well, you know, the administration, the Pentagon, State Department, et cetera, you know, big up policy organizations make any fundamental changes to their their strategy or will this be a one-off and you know we'll get our 750 billion dollars and move on with china and russia at the forefront and do what we got to do yeah i 
you know, there there was a time when I would have hoped that uh, we would learn something from this, but I doubt we will. Um, I think it, for two reasons. One is uh, Americans just have a short memory. Um, you know, we just don't think that way. We want this to be fixed. We want it to be over. And, uh, you know, a year from now, if there's a vaccine, especially, and God willing, there is, um, you know, the answer will be, well, you know, everybody get the vaccine and, you know, just we'll get back to whatever we were doing, even though we really ought to think hard. Why weren't we expecting a, a pandemic? I was on the road for two years um, doing a book tour. And at the end of every talk, I said, they said, what do you think is going to roll back the death of expertise? And it was like my, you know, I was so glad my wife was with me. She's a witness to all this every time. It was like a mantra. I said, pandemic, depression, war pandemic, depression, war, any one of these three things uh, is going to be the thing that could make people think more about expertise. I think at least some of that will happen, that there's going to be a renewed, you know, I think, for example, the anti-vaccine movement, probably not going to look real good at the end of this. Um, but I think the other problem is, again, going back to, you know, what Guy and I were talking about, about hyper-partisanship. Um, you know, you have about 35 or 40 percent of the country that really is going to believe that this, you know, that they are unemployed or that someone in their family got sick and died because of the deep state or because of Tony Fauci or because mm -hmm. um, nobody, you know, nobody wanted to believe the truth about, you know, miracle drugs and we're eating fish cleaner. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's hard to learn lessons when there is this kind of partisan divide that says my guy is never wrong and your guy is always wrong. And that's just not how you learn anything. That's why I think a bipartisan commission um, is a better idea. But I think, um, you know, if Trump's reelected, that won't happen. The last thing the Trump administration will want to do is look at its own performance here. Uh, and if Trump is elected, I think, or uh, isn't reelected, the people, um, who are on the losing side of that election are going to not trust the outcome of anything that has Democrats on it. So I, I'm pretty pessimistic about any lessons learned here. Yeah, that's uh, sad, but I think you speaking truth to power on that, Tom. I, uh, I always you know, get very depressed with these because we always know after the fact you know, how to explain how it happened, but nobody wants to look at ahead of time. You know, like I said, in the, in the cavalry, coordinate, anticipate, verify, calf. We can do that great, but you know, all these things seem to happen. And then we peel back the end here. We're like wondering how in the world did that happen? And you know, I, I hope we don't surprised. do what we did after 9-11, which is then take the results of our investigation and, and create boondoggles. Uh, you know, I was not in favor of creating the Department of Homeland Security. I wasn't in favor of creating a DNI. You know, I, I just thought these were I didn't like uh, um, most of what was getting passed in the Patriot Act. Uh, so the last thing we need is a post-pandemic Patriot Act. I hope that isn't the answer. Um, I would almost rather do nothing than run down that blind corridor and end up having to unscrew all those bad decisions for another 15 years. Well, Tom, thanks again for spending so much of your uh, day with us. And I guess the last question we have for you is kind of what's on your radar right now? What are you working on? What's your next project? What are you excited about? Well, uh, thanks for asking. Uh, I'm working on two things right now. One is um, a piece um, for foreign affairs on whether expertise is really coming back because I, you know, jury's still out on that. Um, I 
I predicted something like this would happen, but is it going to come out the way I I hoped it would come out? Um, yet to be seen. So I'm I'm kind of thinking that through and looking at the international reaction to experts. And I'm working on a longer book uh, for Oxford on democracy itself here in the United States, because I'm really worried that what we're seeing, I started writing this before COVID. It even was really part of the um, what I was writing in The Death of Expertise long before Trump, that there's just something going wrong here where we're just not very good citizens anymore, that we're not patient, we're not tolerant, we're not willing to learn things. We don't go into the voting booth to think about doing um, you know, our civic duty and the public good, that we become this kind of mean-spirited and churlish electorate that um, just thinks about burning it all down if we can't get the thing we want right away. And um, I'm working on that at, as a, at book length and doing research on it. And trying. I keep trying to look for the case that says I'm wrong. Um, and I'm kind of thinking I was kind of hoping that COVID would prove me wrong about some things, but I'm a little worried that COVID is actually going to drive us farther apart than it is uh, bring us closer together. Um, but that, that should be released in early 2021 if I, uh, if I stay on schedule with that. So that's what I'm working on. Fantastic. Yeah, that's exciting. Can't wait to see that come out, Tom. Once again, uh, Dr. Nichols, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Hey, it was an honor being with you guys. We just had a fantastic conversation. We covered a lot of ground, but what, what are the one or two things that really stand out to you? Yeah, the big one, guy, and I've been asked as well in a number of different forums, is what lessons learned is, is America administration going to take away from this? What should they take away? And I was kind of a disheartened to hear that the answer is probably really not much. We're just going to take this as a one-off and uh, get back to you know, business as usual. You know, Once we come up with a vaccine, America just checks the pandemic box, gets our annual CV-19 shot, and moves out, which... Uh, I'm hoping that's not the case because there's a lot more going on behind the scenes with uh, this pandemic and what's going to come out with, with future ones. This is just one of many that our country has endured over the uh, the decades and what's going to happen next. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that's your main takeaway because I think a lot of people who study these kinds of issues have the same concern that there's a lot of lessons to be learned here, that once we have the solution, whatever that might be, that we just you know, kind of check the box and we're moving on. And in fact, that actually dovetails nicely with my number one takeaway from this conversation, which is if, if as Tom and, and you just mentioned, there's a lot of concern that we're not going to necessarily learn the right lessons from this that we can apply forward into the future that'll actually make us better in these responses. I can tell you who is going to be taking a lot of notes and is who's studying us right now. And that are, that are the competitors and the adversaries around the world who would seek to do us harm, right? So you've got China, Russia, North Korea, Iran are the ones stated both in the national security strategy, the national defense strategy. So right now you have a period of time where there's been a lot of misinformation and, and sometimes even official disinformation. You've got a chaotic response. There's the uh, what was the federal response versus the state response? Why did some governors handle it uh, with utmost seriousness. Other ones uh, maybe dismissed it for a little period of time until it started to, coronavirus started to kind of catch fire in their communities. And then they go to emergency stop and start putting people in and stay at home directives. So if I'm one of those nations and I'm, you know, we all do this to each other, meaning every nation does it to every other nation, which is you're looking to see what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses. Uh, my, my concern would be this looks like a fairly significant weakness for the United States of America that for something that is 
as unifying as a pandemic, something that should be, you know, have had a fairly robust and rapid national response plan, we've proven that we were largely unable to do that. And so I think that that certainly tells other nations who would seek to compete with us or possibly in the future seek to do us harm something about how we would approach another national level area of concern. I agree, Guy. That is a great uh, tie up there and a bring it all together on lesson learned, or as I like to say, lessons observed and what we as a nation can uh, can do to move forward here. Absolutely. Well, hey, thanks everybody for joining us for another episode of Holding the Line. I've been your host, Guy Snodgrass. Joining me was co-host Mark Solomons. We appreciate all the wonderful feedback we've received over the last two weeks as we've kicked off this podcast. Please keep it coming. Uh, you can hit us up via social media. You can hit us up also through the Uh, Anchor FM or the Spotify website. So reach out, connect with us, let us know what you thought. Let us know if you have any uh, episodes that you'd love to hear, some topics you'd love to hear covered in the coming weeks. And we look forward to engaging with you down the road to come. Thanks for joining us.